2: Picture yourself alone in the middle of nowhere, and there's somebody following you.
3: He went on his way, we so thought, and then we went on ours. But in reality, he really followed us up there.
2: On Deadly Nightmares, the true crime podcast from ID, listen to real stories of ordinary people stalked by serial killers and attackers.
4: <laughs> Please, <laughs> on, we're not going to die.
2: Listen to Deadly Nightmares on Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts.
5: The following podcast contains content about stalking and sexual harassment that may be triggering or unsuitable for some listeners. Discretion is advised.
6: Over the previous six episodes, we unraveled the story of Jason Christopher Hughes, a cyber stalker who spent decades targeting dozens of people with vicious harassment campaigns.
5: Jason was a dangerous predator who would react to any perceived rejection with extreme vengeance. If you opposed him on anything, you became his enemy for life. And it seemed like he wanted to destroy you.
6: Jason Christopher Hughes may be the granddaddy of cyberstalkers. But you can't study the worst one ever without learning about others who measure up. Billy and I uncovered so much more about this terrifying world that you need to know. And it's all in this special final episode. From Discovery Plus, ID, and Joke Productions, this is Unraveled, The Stalker's Web.
5: In this special bonus episode, we're going to look at other cases that show the power and scope that cyberstalking has. And we'll tell you what you need to know to protect yourself.
6: I'm Alexis Linkletter.
5: And I'm Billy Jensen. Not all cyberstalkers will have the same triggers and tactics as Jason Christopher Hughes. But they all have the power and reach of the internet at their fingertips. And there are often patterns to their behavior that you can guard against, if you know what those patterns are.
6: Each case we're about to present will reveal a dangerous truth about cyberstalking, which was learned the hard way by the victims we spoke with.
4: I never anticipated that this would follow me like it has. It's kind of infinite, like the havoc he could wreak.
5: That's Ronnie J. She's a freelance journalist living in New York. And for the past 13 years, she's been dealing with a monster hiding in the shadows.
4: Every so often I'll get a call from one of my employers asking me about this email they got warning them about me that uh, I'm a fraud, don't trust me, and I'm a bad person.
6: Ronnie has a stalker, whom we'll refer to by the pseudonym, Danny. And Danny has been working hard to derail her career. Like Jason Hughes, Danny's potential for trouble revealed itself early, but it was much harder to spot. Whereas Jason harassed a fourth grade pen pal with obsessive, disturbing letters, Danny was, at first, an actual friend.
4: I met Danny when I was at summer camp, when I was about 12 years old, and he was about 14 or 15. I was quite shy at the time, Um, just awkward. He was a little awkward, so we just kind of fell in together. You know, it's harder to pick up on when you're younger, but there was always something a little off about him, but I didn't. You know, I was kind of a weirdo, too. It was just nice to have someone to sit and eat lunch with.
6: Over the next few years, Danny would contact Ronnie obsessively and shared every detail from his day. Although the topics were innocent, it's the same approach Jason had used with Vanessa V when he chatted her up about pot recipes and esoteric books. Of course, Jason had ulterior sexual motives. But with Danny... This was never clear.
5: What was clear is that as Ronnie entered high school, Danny clung to their friendship much tighter than she did. She didn't want to be rudely dismissive, but he wouldn't take the hint either.
4: I got a cell phone and he would call me on that, but he was being excessive. So I blocked him on my cell number. Eventually I blocked him on AIM. And at the same time, I got a Facebook, and he found me on that. As soon as I signed up for something, he would find me within a day, really. At at most a week, he would find me within a week. Just like whack-a-mole.
5: It all came to a head when Ronnie was in college. Although she was still in state, she thought that leaving home would create a clean break from Danny. She was wrong.
4: I came out of the library and saw Danny just standing there like he had been waiting for me. My stomach just dropped. It was obviously more serious than I had thought.
6: Just like Jason had done with his pen pal, Danny tracked down the obsession of his youth at college. Ronnie was learning the first important lesson we want to tell you. Beware of anyone who doesn't respect your boundaries, no matter how friendly they seem. Boundaries can be hard to discern in today's hyper-connected world, so don't be afraid to set them clearly
5: and early. Soon after the library incident, Ronnie tried to gracefully remove herself from the situation by sending Danny an email saying she couldn't invest any more time in their friendship right now. That's when she learned who she was really dealing with.
4: Fifteen minutes later, I got a message. How could you? You let me on. You bitch. Fuck you. You'll regret this. I'm going to ruin your life.
5: And just like that, a stalker was unleashed. Danny launched a smear campaign against Ronnie that followed her after graduation and into her work life.
4: I would have to talk to my bosses and to explain to them what was happening. He sent letters to the FTC, the EPA, some journalistic institutions, accusations of me being libelous. That could really ruin my career.
6: Danny proved very good at avoiding direct physical threats. And if Ronnie couldn't prove that his actions were causing her to lose jobs... Her legal recourses were limited, which she found out when she took her problem to police in New York.
4: I said, I'm being stalked and harassed, mostly online. And they just burst out laughing (laughs) immediately. They were just like, there's no crime here. Pretty immediately when I got outside, I just burst into tears. It was worse to go to people that you know I thought might actually help me and have them laugh at me and you know, treat me like I deserve this.
6: It's been more than a decade that Ronnie has been dealing with this on her own, and Danny continues to harass her. But here's the thing about these situations. The laws have been changing, and police are becoming more educated on them.
5: And that brings us to our second lesson— Don't give up if police turn you away. Keep going. Keep going until you find an officer that's willing to take up your cause. Remember Vanessa V., who made multiple attempts to report Jason Hughes to police that took no action? It was Austin Detective Spencer Chow who finally took her seriously. And he helped put Jason Christopher Hughes on the FBI's radar. That brings us to another troubling story. For a group of high school girls in New Hampshire, help came in the form of the only detective in their town.
7: These young ladies were frightened to even go outside. It was not something that I had ever dealt with before.
6: That's Detective Rachel Moulton. In 2012, in her small town of Belmont, she found herself pursuing a mystery man was targeting multiple female students in a disturbing way.
5: The case started when Moulton was contacted by a girl we'll refer to as Kate. And Kate had a distressing story to share. An unidentified person had been chatting her up over text, even though she didn't know who it was.
7: He identified himself as Seth. Initially it was a friendly contacts. And then one day, It was like a light switch was flipped on. He just started requesting nude photos of her. She kept telling the person, no, um, I'm not going to send them to you. He then sent her the nude photos that he already had of her somehow. It's more or less of a a surprise attack on her that um, I have these and I want more. And if you don't send them, I'm going to spread these all over the Internet.
6: This mystery man was threatening to upend Kate's life. And it was now up to Detective Moulton to stop him.
5: Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable.
2: Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. I'm very lucky to have a close relationship with my amazing mom, and I'm doubly lucky to be friends with some amazing moms. The thing is, this means that every year, right around this time, I get those panicked phone calls asking for Mother's Day gift recommendations from, obviously, their partners – So I was excited to learn about StoryWorth just in time for Mother's Day 2024. StoryWorth is an interactive way to preserve your loved one's stories for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question like, what do people get wrong about you? Or what's the most incredible trip you've ever been on? All your loved one needs to do is respond to that email with a story, long or short, it doesn't matter. StoryWorth will send you a copy of your loved one's response, and after a year, StoryWorth compiles the stories and some photographs into a beautiful hardcover book that will last for generations. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. The moms in my life are big-hearted, hilarious, and they're all super storytellers, so they're going to love StoryWorth. I just know it. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift you'll all cherish for years, StoryWorth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com/unraveled. That's storyworth.com/unraveled to save $10 on your first purchase.
5: When high school student Kate received naked photos of herself from a mysterious harasser, she recognized them. She had taken them for her last boyfriend.
6: Detective Rachel Moulton followed up with the boyfriend and was able to eliminate him as a suspect. But now it's a bigger mystery. How exactly had someone else acquired these photos? Moulton soon figured it out.
7: She was not aware that she had this cloud attached to her cell phone. And this person was able to break the password and found them.
6: Making matters worse, Seth changed the passwords on Kate's Facebook and email accounts, locking her out. He could release her photos there, and she wouldn't know it until word got back to her. And then she wouldn't be able to take them down.
5: Moulton admits she wasn't the most technologically savvy person at the time. But she couldn't bring herself to pass the buck on this case. Especially after Seth sent out a bunch of nude pictures that he had acquired of other students.
7: I was shocked and very upset as a woman that anybody would be treating young ladies like this.
6: Some of the girls admitted to sending Seth nude photos because he knew things about them and they were scared of what he'd do if they said no. But complying did not make him relent.
7: Some of these young ladies were frightened to even go about their day. I did have one young lady that felt that people were watching her house and the stress of the unknown was too much for her. She did have suicidal thoughts. When you hear those types of thoughts, it makes you go into overdrive. What will be the next escalation? Are we looking at a possible abduction that's gonna come into play?
6: This fear of a physical escalation became even more real when Detective Moulton heard from a girl we'll call May. May had attended Belmont High, but then moved to the nearby town of Laconia. She too had been contacted by Seth and then pressured to send nude photos. When she refused, things took a scary turn.
7: He had made comments that, I know where you live, I know where you work. Shortly thereafter, her vehicle was broken into while she was at work. May was frightened by the unknown, and then having her car being broken into was just uh, over the top.
5: Detective Moulton soon discovered how Seth had broken many of these students' passwords. His trick was surprisingly low-tech.
6: During his friendly chats with these girls, he had asked things like, What street did you grow up on? What's your dog's name? He was slyly gathering answers to commonly used security questions. But Seth, like Jason Christopher Hughes, was also very tech-savvy for the time. This was 2012, and Moulton would have to learn about the tools he was using.
7: I noticed at the bottom of some of the text messages, it would make a statement as, this is from the application, text-free and text-plus. So I went online and um, looked up the applications and learned that I was able to create a telephone number in any area code that I wanted. I had no idea that such technology at the time existed. I put a search warrant together to provide to a judge that I need text plus and text free to turn over information that they have about these particular phone numbers.
5: Meanwhile, Detective Moulton continued looking into other online sites that Seth had accessed. One was called MyYearbook.com. And she learned that they actually record the IMEI number from every phone that accesses their website, which is like a digital fingerprint. She put together another warrant, and it paid off.
6: Detective Moulton finally knew Seth's real name. Ryan Valley, along with his address, right in the town of Belmont.
7: Ryan Valley uh, attended Belmont High School with many of these victims. He had graduated and moved on from the school at this time.
8: He was just an average student that was very quiet and kept to himself. He did not have many friends. He was someone that lunch quite a bit by himself or sat at a table by himself most of the
5: time. Moulton's relentless work helped her close the gap on Valley's technological skills. She was soon able to identify the various IP addresses he had been using, including a very telling one.
8: One of the um, IP connections that we found was a gentleman that had dated his mother and Ryan was living at the house with his mom at the same location.
6: The evidence against Ryan Valley had become an avalanche. Valley was arrested and brought into the police station. Although he denied any involvement, his body language spoke volumes.
8: He sat in a chair and he continuously rubbed his legs and his arms as, as though he was Taking a shower. He told me that he was guilty of something that uh, we had caught him on, and he was doing his best just to um, get himself through that situation at
5: the time. Moulton's commitment had solved this terrifying case. But the big question remained why? What would prompt this quiet high schooler to become a serial predator? It turns out that Valley had once confessed to May, the girl in Laconia, that he had a crush on her. She politely told him she wasn't interested and he decided to turn his frustration against all the girls in the high school.
7: It was very clear to me that this was not a case of someone that wanted the nude photos to look at them. It was someone that wished to gain control of something In order to gain control, he picked this.
5: Cornered by the evidence, Valley took a plea deal. But here's where the story gets crazier. While out on bail, he actually sent more harassing messages to his targets, violating the agreement. The judge would have no mercy. In 2017, Valley was sentenced to eight years in prison.
6: Valley's targets were fortunate to have Detective Moulton on their side. Unlike Jason Christopher Hughes, who had a personal beef with everyone he attacked, Valley went after an entire community. This made him harder to identify because the motive was unclear. It also shows another important truth about cyberstalking. Anyone can become a target. Don't think that you are above it. Sometimes an offender can latch onto you for no discernible reason, and the effects can be devastating, as this next case shows. It started in 2016 in Watertown, Massachusetts. A young woman that Will called Jane and her housemates had a room open up. A man named Ryan Lynn answered their ad.
9: Ryan Lynn was in his early 20s. He graduated from RPI, um familiar Polytechnic Institute. And he was a computer software engineer. They thought he would be an ideal roommate. quiet and he offered to set up the internet for the whole house. At the time, they thought of it as a great gesture and a helpful thing from their new roommate.
5: That's Amy Burkhardt, the U.S. attorney that would be assigned to this case. And as she found out, Lynn's seemingly nice gesture had some ulterior motives.
9: Jane starts getting text messages from Ryan that suggest a level of intimacy with her that they don't have knows her most intimate secret, including uh, an abortion that she had recently had. Jane hadn't told anyone that she had had an abortion. She had only written about it in her online diary.
5: Within days of moving in, Ryan Lynn had breached Jane's personal online files and was now harassing her about her past, including her struggles with anxiety and depression.
8: She's
9: upset. It tells him to stop immediately. You just not solve the problem. The messages were very accusatory and suggesting that she should commit suicide.
6: No one knew that Ryan Lynn was prepared to go as far with his harassment as any cyberstalker we've ever seen. Cyberstalkers will most likely have an edge on you technologically. What they want is to gain an edge psychologically. Jason Christopher Hughes did this with his controlled, drawn out approach. We heard many of his victims describe the constant fear of not knowing when he would strike next.
5: With Riot Lynn, there was no such subtlety. He found someone he felt he could mentally torment and he immediately bombarded her with vicious attacks. Jane was so overwhelmed that she moved out within three weeks.
6: She relocated to nearby Waltham, hoping that some physical distance between herself and Ryan would convince him to forget about her. Instead, he stepped up his cyber-stalking even further.
9: People that knew Jane started to get messages that looked like they were from Jane. And they would contain real photos of Jane and other photos of um, female genitalia making it appear as if it was all her. One of his techniques was to send unwanted child pornography to her mother, her friend, and to her boss. They didn't know what they were going to see, and then they were exposed to child pornography photos.
6: To be clear, this is not some legal gray area about what constitutes harassment. Sending child pornography is a serious crime, and that wasn't all.
9: Ryan Lynn made it almost a full-time job to undermine her life in every way that he could think of. It ranged from financial things, where he would charge things on her credit card that were fraudulent, to applying for unemployment checks, to getting her medical records, reaching out to people who were associated
5: with her in any way. Ryan Lynn had even more computer skills than Jason Hughes, and he was using every weapon in his arsenal. He even tracked Jane down through a pet-sitting app called Rover.com, which he was using to make some extra money. Lynn posed
6: as a pet owner in order to connect with Jane and get her info. He then used that platform to torment her in disturbing new ways.
9: Jane had agreed to watch a dog and a cat who was in a suburban town um, outside of Boston. And the pet's owners received a message purporting to be from Jane, um, saying that she was so sorry. But she had had some type of a nervous breakdown and had killed their cat. And as the cat was in a freezer, they then called the police. So the police showed up at the house where so Jane was happily there watching Too
5: happy, healthy touch. Ryan Lynn also found Jane's new address. And we have to emphasize this point again. The threat from cyberstalkers doesn't always stay in the cyber world. Physical danger is always a possibility.
6: Jane found this out when strange men started showing up at her new house expecting some extreme sexual encounters. They were led there by ads on fetish websites. That seemed to have been posted by her.
9: Some of them were posted in a way to really try to get people to break into the house, saying things like, I've always had a fantasy that someone would come over and pretend to rape me. Um, Here's my address. I'll pretend to be surprised.
6: Ryan had crossed over from encouraging Jane to harm herself to trying to get others to harm her. Thankfully, it wasn't working. And Jane, to her credit, had gone to the police and had already found an advocate there. Officers had actually started staking out her house to help keep her safe.
5: But this is where the story goes from terrifying to surreal. Ryan Lynn decided that attacking Jane wasn't enough. He wanted to attack the entire city. first
9: bomb um, threat the King in went to the house that Jane is living in with her friend. Bomb threats continued to more and more frequent in the Waltham area. Many of them were focused on school. So that included colleges in the town and went down to the elementary schools. And at one point, it was 24 in one day
6: this bizarre case of a cyber stalker had now become a citywide terrorist campaign. In the fall of 2017, the case was fast-tracked to the feds. It was a frustrating situation where they knew who was doing these things. They just couldn't prove it. Pursuing the evidence alongside Amy Burkhart was fellow DOJ prosecutor Mona Sedke. I had a spreadsheet that
7: must have had 500 entries on it, about like every VPN he was using, every account, every phone number. I mean, it was dizzying. We were trying to to get any IP addresses that we could get back to Ryan Lin. And it just just really wasn't shaking out for
5: us. Cyber analysts poured through the evidence, looking to see if Ryan Lin had made any kind of mistake that would allow them to pounce. Eventually, they found it. In his Rover.com account, which he had set up using a Gmail address, they got a warrant to search his Gmail and found something incriminating.
7: He had taken a screenshot of the front of his own phone that showed some of these nefarious Overseas encrypted providers that
9: we were seeing in use a lot. We ended up arresting him on a complaint charging one count of cyber-stocking. That was the best we could do at that point.
6: The initial arrest of Ryan Lynn had two immediate effects. One, the bomb threats stopped. And two, investigators were able to get a warrant to search his electronic devices. It led to a stunning discovery.
9: The most dramatic evidence in the case, and in many ways the most ironic, given that the campaign started with him accessing her diary, was that Ryan Lynn kept a diary himself, and the agent had found a hard drive, and in an area of the hard drive that he had thought he had erased in unallocated space they were able to recover his diary where he had chronicled his entire crime. It showed his thought process and he shared what he was doing and his reaction to it. The diary is probably in the 10 years it was a federal prosecutor, the most stunning evidence that I've ever seen.
5: Based with the damning evidence, Ryan Lynn pled guilty and threw himself on the mercy of the court. The court would not be lenient, as Mona Sedke explains.
7: We definitely had such federal cyber stalking statute. We had computer intrusion from the various account hacks. We had hoax bomb threats. We had aggravated identity theft. And then we had Distribution of the child pornography. He got a sentence of 17 and a half years, the maximum
8: allowed.
6: There was never a clear reason why Ryan Lynn did what he did, other than he simply enjoyed it. But that was also his downfall. He wasn't content to just torment Jane. He committed obvious violations like fake bomb threats and distributing child pornography while chasing his criminal thrills.
5: Jason Christopher Hughes was always smarter than that, skirting the laws expertly and avoiding massive legal trouble for decades while ruining his victims' lives. And that brings us to the most important thing we learned. We need to fight for stronger laws against cyber-stalking and better technology to protect us before these situations turn dangerous.
6: Someone who's leading that charge today is Lenora Clare. Lenora has been dubbed the Erin Brockovich of stalking. She's not only a fierce advocate for victims, she's a victim herself.
3: I've normalized it to the point where I just tell my story like matter of fact, but my story is terrifying. These are horrific, traumatic events.
5: Lenora grew up in and around Hollywood and made a splash with an art exhibit she created in 2011. It drew the attention of a young man named Justin Massler, who wasn't your typical fan.
3: Justin Massler comes to my gallery dressed up in a full spacesuit. His birth name is Justin Massler. His name was then legally changed to Cloud Star Chaser. And he introduced himself as both when I first met him. He looked me directly in the eyes and he said, I'm going to stalk you.
6: Lenora learned that Masler already had a history of stalking Ivanka Trump, a crime for which he would subsequently do time. But while he was incarcerated, he wrote Lenora some very disturbing letters.
3: He's obsessed with Jewish women and large breasts, of which I am both. So his fantasy was to kill me by gassing me through the door with Zyklon B, which is what they used to kill my relatives in the Holocaust, and then coming in and raping my dead corpse.
5: After Masler was released from prison, Lenora was in rough shape. She went to the police to report her serious concerns that he would come after her. They told her to wear less provocative clothes and to stay off the internet. She had nowhere to turn. Luckily, I was working on a show called Crime Watch Daily, we were able to tell her story there. This led to more appearances on other news shows, which ultimately led to Masler being apprehended and taken to a psychiatric facility. But when he got out, he vowed revenge.
3: My stalker wrote me and said, I know you go to LA Comic-Con. It's my intention to kidnap you from the Comic-Con. He didn't realize that I know the owners we had extra security. Um, You know, I I believe some were dressed up as Batman and Superman, and when he came to kidnap me, they were alerted and they held him down until LAPD came and arrested him.
6: In 2017, Masler was sentenced to four years in prison. He would get out in two, which means Lenora is still dealing with this threat today. A threat that has already escalated to attempted physical assault. You can see why she wants things to change.
5: Lenore has spearheaded several initiatives aimed at protecting victims, based on her experiences with Masler.
3: I currently have an ankle monitor on him and I I really hope I do for a very long time. What I wanna do is have the offenders wearing an ankle monitor, but take it one step further using geofencing. Put an app that's given to victims on their phone. So let's just say their restraining order is 3,000 feet, you would get an alert on your phone that it's been violated and your security is compromised. I've partnered with a company that's really cool called Flare, and Flare is like, it's like a bangle bracelet. And so if you're, you know, you're feeling nervous or maybe someone's surveilling you, you can push a button and then it will alert five of your trusted contacts, your GPS location, or call 911 for you. And it just looks like a, an innocuous piece of jewelry. I'm writing a bill called SAVE, which is stalking abuse victims empowerment. The largest part of SAVE is a restraining order registry. So if we could sort of look at things preventatively, you know, if you had the option to look somebody up, it's the risk minimization that we could do. There's a really great app called Garbo. Say you meet someone online, they'll do a background check of the individual for you, alerting you if there's any, you know, dangerous priors in their history or restraining orders.
6: The work Lenore has done and continues to do can help give power back to victims. But for things to really change, it will take all of us.
5: For decades, cyberstalkers have been able to escape notice, hiding from their targets behind a digital cloak, while much of the public misunderstands how much damage these criminals can do. Our lawmakers have misunderstood it too, and legislation has failed to keep up with technology.
6: As our lives move increasingly into the digital realm, we need to stay on top of the digital trends we use while also demanding that our rights and protections are addressed by lawmakers as strongly as possible. That way, we can make sure we'll never be caught in a stalker's web. Unraveled is produced by Joke Productions for ID. The executive producers of this podcast are Joke Finciun, Biagio Messina, and Jeff Koontz, along with myself, Alexis Linkletter, and Billy Jensen. The executive producer for ID is Tim Bainey. Additional producing and writing is by Eric Smith. Our editor is Aaron Frischa. The music and score that you've heard in this podcast is by Biagio Messina, Dave Pellman, and the Alibi and Nimble Libraries. I want to extend a special thanks to Ronnie Jay, Detective Rachel Moulton, Amy Burkhart, Mona Sedke, and Lenora Clare for sharing their stories with us. Be on the lookout for our next unraveled investigation. Coming soon to this feed. Subscribe here or wherever you get your podcasts. It helps a lot when you subscribe, rate, and review the podcasts that you enjoy. Thank you for listening
2: and for your support.